we're going to start a new series tonight called Redeeming Marriage. And one of the things I was, I was thinking about, just this idea this afternoon, you can let me know maybe offline if it, if it would be helpful. Well, I think what I may do is, because we have the question and answer time kind of at the end, and it's, you know, sometimes we have six or seven minutes. Uh, you really haven't had a chance to process all that you've heard. And so I think what I'd like to do is allow, we're going to set up a mechanism here for you to send questions um, throughout this series. So it's a seven-week series. And then what I'm, I'll either do one of two things. We'll either take the questions and try to answer some each week, or if we get a lot of questions, um, we'll take a full week at the end, and we'll just try to answer those questions at the end. Because I know some of the questions, maybe a question you have may not really fit, uh, or you, you may not feel comfortable asking it, especially if it's a personal question about marriage or maybe something you're going through, and I totally understand that. I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. So, so we're going to do a couple of things. Let's go ahead and proceed with that, actually. We'll do a couple of things. If you want to email a question to info at capshaw.org, you can do that. And you don't have to put, I mean, of course, your name will come up. You know, I guess you will know, I guess, who it's from, but that's okay. You can, do it, you can do it that way. Or if you have a question that you don't want, you would prefer, you prefer to be anonymous, that's okay, too. You can write your question and put it in an envelope, and then my understanding is, well, I don't know if I've ever seen these before, but I think there are boxes in the back, right, that you normally put your offering in the, you know, when you're leaving. Yeah, thank you. So we, we do our giving online, and so I, I don't know that I've ever used those. But you can put your question in an envelope, and you don't have to put a name or anything. You can drop it in the envelope, and we'll see how it goes. If we get a lot of questions, then what we'll do is, again, we'll take a week at the, at the very end, week number nine, and we'll try to answer some of those, well, you know, as many questions as we can. If we just get a few, then what I'll try to do is we'll try to carve out a few minutes at the end of every week so that we can, uh, we can try to address those questions. So I think that might be the best way to go about it. So uh, let me pray, and, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you that you have uh, protected us and you have allowed us to come here safely. Uh, thank you that uh, despite the, the uh, predictions and warnings, uh, no one has... Uh, suffered because of a snowstorm or inclement weather or even uh, bad driving conditions. Lord, you've spared us of that. We, we were thankful. We do want to pray for those in other parts of the country, um, places like Minnesota and South Dakota and Illinois and uh, some of those places where they're hit with sub-zero temperatures. We want to pray especially for the homeless in those communities, those who are um, trying to just survive and just as I noticed uh, driving out of a restaurant yesterday that there was a homeless man there, and, and just thinking that even in the 30s it would be hard, but I can't imagine if it's below zero. So I want to pray for those who are, who are displaced, those who are homeless, uh, those who maybe, uh, you know, maybe even teenagers or young adults who have been uh, cast out of their own homes. I want to pray that you would protect them and provide a place for them, food and shelter. I want to pray for those who uh, may have lost their heat, um, still trying to figure out how to stay warm. I want to pray that you would protect them and comfort them. And, uh, and Lord, just uh, watch over your people. And for those who are struggling and crying out to you, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just deliver them as it is your desire, we know. Give us wisdom tonight as we uh, look at uh, this first week of our Redeeming Marriage series. I pray that you would bless it. And I pray you give us uh, great clarity and candor with one another, with each other, and uh, help us to see tonight as we get into this, um, this real foundation, this theological foundation for marriage. And I pray that you would nourish our 
souls through it. Thank you for uh, folks who are here that are new. I pray that you would uh, encourage them through this uh, evening as well. And uh, pray for Pastor Chris, help him to get over the flu and others who are sick. Uh, those who are, I know, have been told who are at home uh, with a fever or vomiting or strep throat or whatever it is, Lord, I pray you bring about swift healing. And also for our friend Jerry Flanagan, who still awaits um, some sort of explanation as to why he continues to be in pain, uh, almost incessant pain, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just provide the right diagnosis and remedy for him, Lord. We love you, and we thank you uh, that you first loved us, and we appeal to you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you want to do any extra reading along the way, um, the book that we're going to be using for this ser- this series is called "Redeeming or uh, What to Expect: Redeeming the Realities of Marriage" by Paul David Tripp. And uh, okay, so we have three extra copies too. Um, it's a terrific book. Uh, one of the top six or seven that that you know that I've appealed to over the years for, uh, for marriage. So you can get one of these in in the back. Um, a couple other, Tim Keller has a great book on marriage. Uh, John Piper has a terrific book on marriage. Um, Dave Harvey has a book called uh, When Sinners Say I Do, which is the book that I always use for pre-marriage counseling, setting, getting couples ready for marriage, but then also have also used that book uh, for marriage counseling as well. So feel free to, uh, to read along or to grab uh, other resources. Um, we're going to look, hopefully, what we're going to do tonight is kind of establish the foundation for this series, but also... Um, set up the next six weeks, which will be, each week will be uh, driven by a commitment, um, uh, such as in week three, um, we commit to uh, building trust in our marriage. So that'll be, the commitments then are going to be based on uh, what God has committed to and actually done for us. So it's not just a series of things to do, but but commitments that we make that flow out of the commitment that God has made and actually kept, rather, uh, to us as well. So um, tonight we're going to try to look at, again, with fresh eyes, what the Bible, what God says about marriage from a, a very foundational theological level. But I want to start by saying the Bible is not a marriage manual. And, you know, we all, a lot of times we'll go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about parenting? And what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about uh, being a good neighbor? And those are all, that's fine to do that, but the Bible is a love story. Uh, between God and his people, a, a divine rescue. Uh, but there are things, of course, the Bible says about marriage in the context of that big story we call the meta narrative. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning uh, tonight, Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we'll have the, the words on the screen, but you're welcome to turn there. Here's some of the questions that hopefully we're going to ask and answer over this series. So we won't get to all of these tonight, of course. But um, why do my spouse and I have such a hard time getting along? And what can we do about it? So why do we why do we struggle relationally? What can we do about it? Um, how can we diagnose the health of our marriage? What should I do if he doesn't love me anymore? If she doesn't love me anymore? Um, I think I'm done trying. Where do I go from here? Uh, we don't trust each other anymore. How do we rebuild trust? Uh, I mean, that's just a few, but we're going to look at some of those things over the upcoming weeks uh, and a variety of others. And if you're not married, if you're here and you're not married, um, that's okay. There's, there's, there's going to be plenty to learn, hopefully, in this series for you. If you're not married, if you don't expect to be married, um, even, and hopefully this is not the case, you don't want any relationships with anybody else of any kind, um, 
then it's still going to be relevant for you. And if you fit in that last category, you're going to need this stuff more than anybody. If you say, I don't want any relationships of any kind with anybody, then uh, hopefully uh, you'll still uh, benefit from this. It's no secret, of course, that marriage is under attack. Um, It's under attack by a cultural script that's being written and promoted, uh, of course, by, in in very subtle ways that we don't realize, of course, by sitcoms and rom-coms, movies, by uh, talking heads. Um, There's a cultural script that's being written about marriage, what it is, who should, who should uh, enjoy it and how it should be observed. So that's influencing us. And, of course, if we believe in spiritual warfare, which we do, we believe in the evil one, marriage is under attack by the evil one as well. In fact, I think what the evil one would desire most is to destroy the church and her leaders, but then also right along with that, marriages. And so we're, we're well aware that marriage is under attack. I have... Um, I use this app called PrayerMate, thanks to uh, somebody who's been coming on Wednesday nights who sort of uh, clued me in on this. And in, my, in that app, I have eight marriages that I'm praying for, eight marriages. Now, they're not all in crisis mode, but some of them are. Some are. Some are barely hanging on. And some, humanly speaking, are beyond help, humanly speaking. So I have, and that's, if I know of eight marriages that I'm praying about, that's, I, there's plenty that I don't know about, right? There are plenty of marriages that I have no idea about that are struggling. People who maybe come in at the very last minute right before the service starts, they leave right as soon as it ends, and, and they're not involved in relationship or community. So if I have eight that I know of that I'm praying about, again, at least one or two that are very, very in, in dire straits, then we can only imagine that there are plenty of other marriages. So we know that, that marriage is under attack. Um, it's under attack by the evil one. Um, it's under attack by our culture. And we also know, I think we have to admit, don't we, that marriage is hard. I mean, it's very hard. So Janine and I are celebrating 25 years in, in April, and, um, and she's my best friend, the person I can't wait to get home to see, I absolutely enjoy, the person I always want to be around. But we have fights and we have arguments. Sometimes she gets on my nerves. Can I say that? Sometimes I'm sure, you're not going to believe this, I get on her nerves. This is the way it works when your two people, two sinners come together. We, we, act, we have big arguments. I mean, we, you know, we resolve them in a biblical way, I think, but there are things that we disagree about. And there are times when, you know, we, we get really passionate. I've got a friend who's a pastor who said to me one time, who got to know us very well over eight years, he said, you know, most marriages, there's one really feisty one, and then there's one who's much more agreeable, but you guys, your marriage has two feisty ones. So for us, you know, this is the, this is the reality, right? I mean, it's, it's difficult. It takes hard work. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes concession. It takes loving sacrificially. So we have to, we have to at least begin with the, with the recognition that marriage is under attack. Marriage is actually God's design. He's the one who, who designed it and instituted it. And marriage for two sinful people, which describes every marriage on earth, is going to be difficult. So we have to begin with those assumptions. And what we want to do in this series, in the words of Elise, what we, what we don't want to do in the words of Elise Fitzpatrick is we don't want in this series to kind of muddy the waters with self-focused and self-reliant strategies. So, you know, what we're not going to do here is we're not going to give you a bunch of you know, sort of secrets that are, that, that are going to absolutely, you apply these things rightly, 
and they're going to work and, and just absolutely make it for an amazing marriage because that's not really how it works. Um, what we are going to do, hopefully, is we're going to diagnose some real problems. We're going to uh, we're going to look to the real solution, which is faith in Jesus Christ, a humble faith in Christ, rooted in Him, rooted in the gospel, informed by the gospel, and um, we're going to look at some of those those commitments that are that really flow out of uh, the gospel. So. Uh, that's what we're going to try to do. So we're going to begin again with Genesis chapter 2, going all the way back to the very beginning. And uh, I think I share with you, in 2007, I went on a mission trip to the Amazon jungle, probably a different place than uh, Van went because it's very expansive and thousands of unreached people groups. And we we went way back into the jungle, and it was getting dark. We stayed in this village with this couple, and we stayed on a houseboat. This is where they lived. And they had to live on a houseboat because the water levels would rise. You know, your house would be totally submerged if, you, if your house didn't rise with the water. And they had, they had two very little kids, like three and one and a half, and they had a 16-year-old. And, I, and we spent half a day with them. And I remember at the end of that half day, I said to the man, the father, I said, what, what's your biggest challenge that you see, you know, thinking it might be, you know, rodents or varmints or snakes or... And he said, the biggest challenge is for our 16-year-old, he has no sense of community. There's no one his age around. And it's really, really taking a toll on him emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And the reality is, of course, we're created for relationship. Um, This young man was desperate for relationship because he was actually wired that way. And we are created for relationship. After all, when God said, uh, let us make man in our image, there was nobody else around but him. And when he says our, it's a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who has always existed in perfect relationship with himself. And as image bearers of God, we then are deeply, deeply relational. We need other people. We are created, first of all, to be in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father, but also to be in a relationship with other people. And so as we go back to this original design, we're going to see uh, some of that reality really fleshed out. Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we're kind of going to look at really 15 through 25, but let me read verses 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So now we're, of course, picking up in the middle of the chapter so we don't see the, the, overall, the overall context. But if we looked at the bigger context, we would see that as God creates the world, uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, so nothing exists except God, He creates the world, and when he looks out on the world, he says seven times in a row, it's very good. It's very good. It's very good. And then it's not until he looks out on man in his loneliness that he says, it is not good. So he gives himself, you know, so to speak, uh, an A-plus on all of his creation, and then he looks over at Adam, at least metaphorically speaking, and he sees his loneliness, and he says, this is not right. This is not good. 
I will make for him a helper suitable for him. And sometimes people get caught up in this word helper, this Hebrew word helper, um, and, and they, they infer from that that it, it implies uh, inferiority. But in fact, the same Hebrew word is used of God in the Psalms. So there's nothing there. There's nothing less than about this sort of helper. This is God's design. He creates a helper. He says, I'm going to make a helper for him, for, for man. Everything else was right except man's isolation. Now, at this point, man already had the animals, didn't he? So he had the animals. So he did have some sort of companions, right? I mean, and, and the animals were there. He was, he was created. He was actually tasked with naming the animals, um, and they could do all kinds of things, but they were not image bearers of God. So there was something very, very different, something that nothing else that was created could claim, only man, and that is he was an image bearer of God. He was meant to reflect something of the glory of God. And so because there was no one else like Adam, there was no one else who, who was also an image bearer, God said he wants to make, he decided to make someone who would be his equal, who would be an image bearer as well. Look at verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a sleep, a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs, his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So God puts Adam to sleep. No one's allowed to watch this stage of God's creating activity. And out of Adam's rib, he makes the perfect woman, uh, literally, morally, uh, figuratively, the perfect woman. And when Adam wakes up, God brings the woman to him, and Adam says, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. This is it. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For those of you who are Hebrew scholars in here, you know that uh, the word isha, which is translated woman, it comes from the word ish, which is translated man, and it's a play on words that indicates equality, sharing the same common nature. And bone of my bones is a, is a Hebrew idiom. It's the same as saying, this is the closest that anyone could ever be to me. There's no way to be any closer than I am with this person that God has brought to me. She is of my very blood. She is of my very nature, right? He says, look, forget the dogs and the cats. They're all fine, right? But this is what I've been waiting for. In an instant, his loneliness was over. God makes woman for man. He makes her from man, and he brings her to man. And uh, Augustine would write somewhere in the fourth century that God makes uh, her from his rib so that she would be beside him. Not above, not below, but beside him. So God makes her from Adam's side. So, again, she's equal, a counterpart, um, and a helper is simply one who provides what is lacking in man alone, the one who does what man alone cannot do. And when God removes a piece of man in order to create woman, David Adkinson, who's a great Old Testament scholar, says this, it implies that from now on, Neither is complete without the other. The man needs the woman for uh, her wholeness, and the woman needs him for hers. So the point is, again, nothing else could satisfy this, this loneliness. Nothing else 
could be a complete helper for man. Now, I want to say this, and if and maybe this applies to someone in here, maybe it doesn't, but whenever I do any teaching on marriage, I always want to make sure I point this out. If you're single, this, this is not to discourage you at all. God has something in store for you that is for your good, for your completeness. If he's called you to a life of singleness, then God will, in fact, give you the grace and the mercy and the companionship um, so that you can enjoy a fully satisfied life, right? Uh, but if you're, if you're married, your spouse is the only one who can provide that intimacy that God uh, designed marriage for. So uh, God's design for a marriage is that a wife would be the only one to satisfy her husband. Nothing else, no one else, no one else on earth can provide the intimacy that God has designed your spouse to provide. So what I want to do tonight for the, the, the rest of our time is really look at this concept of oneness. What does it mean? What is, what is biblical oneness, and how do we see it really fleshed out in Genesis chapter 2? Um, we, we, this, uh, again, 23, this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what does it mean to be one? Here, here's the first, and we'll look at this. I'm going to give three sort of clues into what oneness is. And here's the first one. The power of oneness is derived from its exclusivity. Power of oneness is derived from its exclusivity. Now, you know, okay, Jesus was a Jew, and the Old Testament uh, was, that, that represented the scriptures that Jesus read, right? And Jesus was part of ancient Near Eastern culture, Jewish culture, you know, 2,000 years ago, and when we understand there, there are many aspects of the Old Testament and the New Testament that can only really be understood if we understand something of that Hebrew culture, the ancient Near Eastern culture. And when two people would get married in ancient Hebrew culture, the marriage ceremony would involve a, a groom entering alone into this, this canopy, which was a it was kind of like, I guess what we call them, easy ups. It was kind of like, it was, it was something like that. And I don't envision that exactly. It was kind of like an easy up. Um, it, was a, it was a sheet over four poles that had curtains on it. And it was called a chuppah. A chuppah, it's a Hebrew word that, where the, the groom would go into the chuppah, and then he would wait for his bride to come. And the bride would then be escorted into the, the canopy, this chuppah, um, by attendants who would bring her forth. They would have candles, but they dare not go under the canopy. No one else could go under the chuppah, only the bride. Now, all the guests would wait outside while the groom received his bride. And once the bride was joined with the groom under the chuppah, they would consummate their relationship. Um, before, and then when they exited, so you can imagine... You, uh, the pressure, I guess, the, uh, the, the awkwardness, but you're under there, and, and you, they consummate their marriage, and then when they would exit the chuppah, what would happen was a, a week-long celebration would ensue, sometimes longer than that. You, you read about some of the weddings, and we're going to get to this in John chapter 2 in a few weeks on a Sunday morning, but um, that entering into the chuppah was a symbol of the exclusivity of this relationship. No one else 
dare enter when the groom was awaiting the bride. You talk about a serious, serious cultural offense. No one else even come close to that. The bride was brought to the place. She was then greeted by the groom, and that's where they, in exclusivity, would consummate their marriage. And when two people then, it's a symbol for the exclusivity of the one flesh union for us. When other people are allowed under the chuppah, it will invariably cause tremendous damage. And today, way more than 2,000 years ago, there are far more dangers and temptations to that exclusivity than ever before with social media. Far more temptations and dangers than ever before. Illicit relationships that start from texting. There's a text that's somewhat ambiguous, maybe, so the response is less ambiguous, less mysterious, more direct. The response then from that is of a sexual nature, but it's, it's just hanging out there enough that it, maybe it can be interpreted a different way. The response then back to that is more of an overt sexual nature. A texting relationship begins, and then all of a sudden, discussions and meet. This is what old, old boyfriends and girlfriends researched and discovered via Facebook. This is a real thing. This is a very real thing. People are saying, you know what, I'm really not being satisfied at home. I'm not really enjoying my marriage. It's just hard. It's too hard and so on. And so just out of curiosity, well, I wonder what she's doing. I wonder what she's doing these days. Scroll through. See, oh, recently divorced. Scroll through. It doesn't seem, I don't see any pictures of her husband. Scroll through. A lady says, well, I don't see any pictures of this woman's, you know, husband or whatever it is. So there's, there's more danger today of allowing someone else under the metaphorical chuppah than ever before. And when that happens, the seeds of betrayal and doubt and that intimacy, that exclusivity begins to wither away. And you can tell if you're starting down that road, you can tell, you can even tell sometimes by the way that couples look at each other. You can watch their eyes. Do their eyes reveal a mutual respect for one another? Do their eyes and their, does their body language suggest they actually are delighting in one another? Or do you see in subtle ways tearing one another down? Uh, jokes at the other one's expense. Do you see by their language, they're, if they're, are they cutting down or are they building up? Are they interested in one another? Do they listen to one another or has their affection been diverted? I was having lunch with a man 20 years ago. I wasn't even, no, it was longer than that because I wasn't in pastoral ministry yet. I wasn't even in seminary yet. Having lunch with a man, he worked for uh, butternut bread. Is there such a thing anymore? I don't know. This was this wonder. Apparently, at this point, there was butternut bread. He was a delivery, he worked for delivery. So we sit down for lunch. We're having wings or whatever it was. And one of his coworkers, a female, came and, and joined us happened to be along her route or whatever. And I noticed there was a familiarity between the two that was a little kind of surprising to me, kind of reaching over, sharing each other's food, you know. There was, there was a real sense of 
intimacy that, that really kind of stood out to me. And then it was about a month later, and this guy was about five or six years older than I was at the time. A month later, we were playing golf, and he said, I haven't told anybody this. I don't know why he chose me to tell, because I really wish he wouldn't have. But he said, I, I don't know why I've told him. I'm tell, I've never told anybody this, but I'm going to tell you. He said, I'm, I'm in the middle of an, uh, of an affair on my wife. I knew both the husband and the wife, friends from, you know, even childhood. But you can see there's a, when that exclusivity is violated, there, there's, a, there's a familiarity uh, with someone else of the opposite sex, which can be very telling. There's an unwillingness to, to listen. I met with a, a newly married couple once, and the young husband uh, shared with me. He said, she gets mad at me sometimes because I fall asleep when she's talking. I said, oh, really? That bothers her, huh? Well, what an impatient woman. Um, I didn't really say that. I thought, this guy. <laughs> I said, this guy. Well, he was falling asleep while she was talking, and, and she was becoming very bothered by that naturally. But it would, I would later find out that he was involved in a, at least by his own admission, a relationship that had, had, start, had just become, or was at that point, according to him, just sort of banter that was becoming illicit. It was inappropriate. And, you know, it's, it's so easy, it's so easy to see, I mean, how those comments and relationships can, can just really, uh, you know, go off the rails. And so... Um, we want to make sure that 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 oneness and this idea, this two becoming one flesh, which is the, the really the essence of, of biblical marriage is, is oneness, two becoming one, that it is protected and preserved while the by preserving the exclusivity of it. So look at uh, verse 24 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's something incredible that happens in this passage. Again, it's, it's, it's the description of the first marriage. The text recounts it this way, Adam and Eve became one flesh. And again, there's no, there's no greater, more revealing, more biblically accurate statement regarding marriage. You won't read anything better in any Christian bookstores. You won't see anything. Any, two becoming one. This is the quintessential statement of biblical marriage. It, yeah, it's a statement about sex, but it's so much more than that. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about marriage in Mark 10, three times he defines it as two becoming one. And again, there's, a, there's an emotional aspect, there's a volitional aspect, there's a psychological aspect, there's a physical aspect. All this is tied up into this oneness, this two becoming one. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, which is covenantal language. This is so important. This holding fast, and if you have a King James Version, was Andrew jumping here? Whoever, you know, some people, you have King, he always says King James only, or, or no, just King James, he likes that, sorry. But whatever it is, if you have cleave, you cleave to one another, you hold fast, it's language of covenant. And covenant is such an important concept in the Bible, such an important concept. In fact, um, the Hebrew phrase, karath bereave, you cut a covenant. And what would happen, I, I used this one time when I was doing a, officiating a wedding, and multiple people say, you don't really need that at a wedding, but it is important. What would happen is when two people would enter into a covenant, they would often take an animal, and they would cut the animal in half, 
and, the, and they, would, they would separate the sides. And as the blood spilled out in between them, what it was was an indication that what's happening here can never be totally reversed. You can't take an animal that's been cut in two and put it back together and watch it go off again. It won't work. So I understand why that's not the best language for a wedding ceremony, but I want to try to drive home the centrality of covenant, right? So, but, but that's, this is covenantal language. To uh, hold fast, I don't know why I put that right where I walk, um, to hold fast in, in this covenantal language. So a covenant, now here's the thing. This is so important as we look at this, this issue of oneness. A covenant was established, now listen to this, before love blossomed. You might say it this way, and this is the second, or second point this morning related to oneness. Love is only secondary in establishing oneness. Covenant is primary. You, you would not believe the number of times that I've heard in a relatively short ministry tenure, but I don't love him anymore. I say, so? I don't love her anymore. Oneness is rooted in covenant, not in feelings. Oneness is, is, is anchored in the biblical concept of covenant. For Hebrew men and women in Bible times, the first, listen, it's the first time they laid eyes on their spouse was in many cases their wedding day. And they were already committed to one another. And from that point, they were expected to remain committed to each other and grow in their love for each other. Genesis 24 tells us that that's how it went down for Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife. And then what happened? And then he loved her. It wasn't as though he said, you know, I got to get, to, I'm not saying, course we need to get to know each other, right? I've got four kids. I'm not just going to let them go out and just marry somebody. Yeah, we get to know, they get to know each other. You, you spend time developing relationship, but that's not, it's not central. What's most important is honoring the covenant. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating prearranged marriages in the 21st century. Although all, there are certain cultures that still do this, and they have a much lower divorce rate. But there are some things we can learn from the, the commitment demonstrated by our first parents. Marriage was not about falling in love, but about being committed to each other and learning to love each other more deeply. I still remember the first time I told Janine that I loved her. We were sitting, we were in her house and in her living room. Her parents were in a different room. And I said to her, you know, I think I'm falling in love with you. And then I waited. And then I waited some more. And I looked around awkwardly, only to have her tell me, John, love is not something you fall in and out of, but it's a commitment. And I thought, this is a really odd time for a teaching moment, to be honest with you. Um, but she was right. She was right. You know, you can fall in and out of love. with you know, that, that, It's not about falling in love or falling out of love. It's about honoring a commitment, a covenant that you cut, that you make before God with the one that he has for us. So in our culture, you know, you marry for love, and you only remain married as long as you love. Of course, love is defined as this sort of warm, sentimental feeling. But that's not the biblical model. Now, of course, it's nice to have that warm, sentimental feeling. 
after 25 years of marriage almost and another three and a half years of dating, I still had that warm, sentimental feeling. I love being with my wife. I, I delight in being with her. It's, it's my favorite part of the week. But even more than that feeling, again, there exists a growing love that actually proceeds from marriage. Uh, a Jewish scholar by the name of Marvin Wilson has written, it's a, kind of my go-to book in, in understanding Hebrew Jewish culture. He says, though both dimensions of love are important for Christian marriage, there remains a decisive lack of emphasis in Christian preaching about the need for love to blossom after the marriage ceremony. So here's where this helps in prolonging our marriages and ensuring they're pleasing to God. Again, if someone says, I don't love him, I don't usually say so, but I I will say to them, okay, but that's not really what's most important. It's not really most important. I'll say, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I do. She just doesn't excite me anymore, or I've gotten this a lot. He's just not the person I thought he was. Okay, well, let's talk about that, and, and, let's, and I want to I listen and understand where you're coming from, but the reality is what's most important is not how much love you feel at the moment, but whether or not you're willing to honor the covenant you made with and before God. And one of the deep and beautiful aspects of this creation account this is one of the ways that we honor each other as husbands and wives. So if you go, we have what's called in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation mandate, sometimes called the cultural mandate. And what this is, you know, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And what the cultural mandate means is, as image bearers of God, just every single person, as image bearers of God, we've been given the task by God to fill out the endless cultural possibilities of the earth. So when we make art, right, my, uh, I think I've shared this on Wednesday or Sunday or something. My, my dad surprised us with a visit a couple of weeks ago, and we had dinner, and he went to a basketball game with us, and, and he was saying that his grandmother, my great-grandmother, was an award-winning painter, an artist, and he showed me some pictures of some of her artistry. When, when a person makes beautiful art, they are filling in some way the cultural mandate of extending the cultural possibilities of the world. When someone uh, composes beautiful music or writes beautiful music, they're honoring God as an image bearer. You can take that in all levels of art and culture and building and design. So for our engineers in here, when when, when a bridge is designed more beautifully and structurally sound than ever before, you're filling out the cultural mandate and doing something that honors God. Um, again, music and art and film and literature and design, all of those things, as man and woman do this together, exercising their, their, their God-given gifts, we bring God glory. And one of the, one of the ways that we do this as a, as a couple is we have the task of finding out what our spouse's gifts are and encouraging them to use those gifts, talents, and passions for the glory of God. So whether it's writing or counseling or designing or or dancing or composing or any of those things, singing, painting, building, whatever it is, and of course, way more than those things, but that just gives you a sample, we, we should encourage our respective spouses to use these expressions of what it means to be image bearers of God. 
So, you know, and, and we're, we're still, after 29 years, learning about each other. But I know some of the things that Janine is uniquely gifted at. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to encourage her and spur her on in those things. Uh, I'll give you one example. I, I almost always take Janine when we go on hospital visits. We did a couple of the last couple weeks. She's way better at this, identifying with people in their suffering, way better at extending mercy. And when, they, when, you know, when someone uses medical language, I always pretend like I know what I'm talking about. I rarely do. Janine does. So she can actually comment on it. And she can, she can, say, she can you know, offer help that I can't offer. And so um, whatever it is, we see, and she has a lot of other gifts, a lot of whatever it is we see, we help to really spur on and encourage our, our spouses in those areas. Um, the, more, the better we get to know each other through that mutual exploration, the deeper then the love blossoms after the marriage commitment. Uh, there's another book I didn't mention you can, you can check out by Tremper Longman called Intimate Allies. And he's, uh, Tremper Longman says this, To love my wife truly and rightly... I must have a vision of how she is different from every other woman on the face of the earth. I must be captivated by my wife's potential, her giftedness, her burdens, her passions. The more that I get to know my wife, the more I love her and the more I appreciate her. And the more, the, the more I appreciate all the ways she's different than I am. Praise God. See, I didn't appreciate this when we were newly married. I wanted her to do everything the way that I would do them. I wanted her to respond to everything the way that I would respond. I wanted her to laugh at the things that I thought was funny. I wanted her to answer the way that I would answer. And what I realized is I was just trying to create her in my own image, which was going to be a miserable thing for her and for me. We had to learn to value and appreciate what makes us different. And so, you know, we joke all the time, if Janine's on the phone with somebody, Forget about it. i got to grab a Snickers or something because she's not going to get off the phone anytime soon. That used to drive me crazy. Now I really value. I still sometimes would like her to wrap it up a little sooner, but I, 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 now I value that she's actually listening and empathizing. And, and, and I'm much more like Van. I can get out of a phone call in 30 seconds. Hey, i got to go. I'll call you back. I'm not trying to put you. I, I, you know, I know when Van's done with the phone call. It's like, Van, oh, you st- oh you're not there anymore. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, but it's but learning to learning to value and appreciate and respect those things that make each that make us different than the other person. And I'm telling you, I'll, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. The first five, don't say ten. The first five years of our marriage, at least, I was terrible at it. I really was. I was terrible. I didn't value the things that make Janine uniquely different. I wanted her to be just like me. And, and God chiseled away and, and humbled and, and brought me low. And, and through those things, you know, then, I, then as I see her shine in her areas of giftedness, I realize, wow, what a fool I was. What a fool I was to try to do that. So covenant precedes love. Covenant precedes love. I know it's a crazy notion, but Genesis 2.24 says that before the two become one flesh, they demonstrate this irrevocable commitment to one another by leaving and holding fast. Again, that covenantal language. It's hard. It's hard for some people to do to leave 
their parents. Um, and, the, and the leaving, by the way, is not only physical, right? You actually leave physically, leave, you know, you leave their respective homes, but there's also a relational and emotional aspect to the leaving. And some people have a very difficult time with this. Uh, if a woman is calling her dad over every problem she encounters in the house or with her husband, she hasn't really left. She may live 12 hours away. She hasn't really left. If a man is more prone to take care of his mom, her house, her yard, her garage, whatever, but he doesn't listen to his wife's pleas, he hasn't really left. He may live 16 hours away but he hasn't left his parents. And, you know, mentioned the first five years of our marriage and how difficult they were, mainly because of my own immaturity. But it was helpful that we were nine and a half hours away from our family at that time because we didn't have anybody else to go to. You know, we, we, we had to figure out, we had to work it out, and we had to learn what it meant. For me, I had to learn, because I come from a loud family, and we argue a lot in the true sense of the word. We love to debate and and Janine's family hates that. They hate that. So for me, it meant I had to learn how to listen much better. I had to learn how to speak softly. I had to learn how to nurture. And Janine, who came from a family who didn't really like to deal with conflict, in many cases, they didn't. They just would leave and go to separate rooms. So she had to learn, I'm going to deal with conflict even if it means through tears. I'm not just going to ignore this. Now, by the grace of God, and Janine's parents are 70 and 68, respectively, and, and you talk about a couple that have they've continued to learn and grow and been sanctified even in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Praise God. It's a, really an example for me. When we first started dating 29 years ago, they didn't resolve conflict. They just pretended like everything was better, and um, Janine's mom would get upset. Janine's dad would shut down. They would go separate rooms or whatever. They just never resolved it. But we had to learn in order for, to, to, to live at peace with one another, to love each other sacrificially, how to actually resolve conflict. And a good part of that, a, an aid to that, was the fact that we actually had to leave, uh, leave our parents and, and leave uh, you know, in terms of uh, distance as well. So in order for two to become one, again, not just sexually, but emotionally, spiritually, volitionally, both, both must leave their father and mother. We can't ignore the fact that two becoming one is a description, at least in part of the sexual union, of course, but becoming one flesh is so much bigger than just sex. The sexual union must be part of it, and, uh, and it's exclusive to the marriage union. So, yes, it's part of it, and, and I think maybe uh, we'll, we'll have a week or at least a portion of a week where we talk about the importance of that sexual union. Um, I'll give that to Pastor Adam. But... Um, We'll see how that flows out in the schedule, but but that's part of it. But that's not all of what it means to become one flesh. Experiencing oneness requires the fascinating, unending exploration of one another, and uh, we'll talk about that more. So look at verse 25 again. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, why is it that they were naked and they felt no shame? It wasn't because they both had perfect bodies, okay? It wasn't because they had these terrifically sculpted bodies. Now, they did have those great bodies because they were, that's the way God designed them. And sinned. But, the, but the real issue is sin had not entered the world. 
And so their nakedness was not just physical. Uh, The narrator uh, indicates that it was deeper than that. Hence, they had nothing to hide from each other. They had no need to run, no need to justify anything. There was nothing but innocence, purity, selflessness, all of which was destroyed, of course, when Adam and Eve revolted against God in the garden. And what happened is they immediately covered themselves. I know I got a sermon on this I love, but I can't get into it right now. They tried to cover themselves. They tried to manufacture their own covering. And what does God does? God provides it. Just a hint, a beautiful picture of the gospel, which will be unveiled throughout the rest of the Bible. But um, because they became aware of not just their own nakedness, but they realized they were naked in the sense of being under the judgment of God. Sin devastated their marriage, and not just their marriage, but my marriage and your marriage and every marriage that would ever follow. Here's a third aspect of this oneness we're going to talk about tonight, and we're almost done. The single greatest enemy of oneness is sin. Both our first parents' sin and our sin. The sin of Adam and Eve, which resulted in a curse upon the world, twisted and tainted every relationship. Sin is the reason we fight. Sin is the reason we can't get along. It is the sin of our first parents, called original sin, and the fact that we are born diseased with sin. And it's also the manifestation of our first parents' sin, our own disobedience, our own acts of selfishness. Sin is the reason we look elsewhere besides our spouse for physical pleasure, approval, and oneness. And because sin is the problem, the gospel is the only answer. Now, you may be thinking, we're in Genesis, and this is the first week on marriage. How do you get back to the gospel already? Well, the gospel is the power of God that changes individual lives, It's also the power of God that redeems and rescues marriages. The gospel is the announcement, the good news, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for our sin, was raised for our justification, and that announcement, that real historical event, has endless implications on how we love one another, how we live with one another, how and why we obey God, The solution for a bad marriage is not more date nights, prettier flowers, more sex, a longer vacation. And those are all good things. Those are all good things. But going on more dates with your wife is not going to save your marriage. Going on longer vacations, that may be refreshing. I hope you're able to do it this year, but that's not what's going to save your marriage. The solution for a bad marriage is a deeper and humbler and richer understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to, you hear this all the time, we're going to really flesh this out, okay, over the course of this series. When I have a hard time loving my wife the way that I should and believing, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you when I feel like you're loving me the way that I want to feel loved in return, the gospel reminds me that I've been loved when I didn't deserve to be loved, when in fact I was kicking and screaming against God 
as C.S. Lewis testifies in his, t- his testimony, right? The hound of heaven, beautiful testimony. He didn't want anything to do with God. He didn't want God. He was a true intellectual. You know, uh, British intellectuals, they don't need God. But God came and got a hold of C.S. Lewis's heart, kicking and screaming. Um, when I don't love my wife the way that I should, the gospel informs me the way that, lo- the way that God loved me when I was dead in sin. And so that motivates and empowers me than to love my wife the way that I should. When I feel like my wife doesn't approve of me, which I say never feel like, thank you, babe, uh, the gospel reminds me that I've already been approved by God in Christ, and so I don't need to wait for someone else's approval before I can give myself or love or sacrifice or serve. When I get frustrated because my wife is not doing things the way that I want her to, the gospel reminds me of where I was when God rescued me. Selfish, sinful, rebellious, arrogant, hopeless, condemned. And when I come face to face with my own lingering sinfulness, the baggage of the flesh, and the way that I still seek my own way, put myself first, and yet am still deeply loved by God in the middle of it. It breaks through my hard heart. It breaks through my self-centeredness and stubborn resistance and enables me and empowers me to love. Uh, Dave Harvey says this in, in paraphrasing the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, when sin becomes bitter, marriage becomes sweet. This is not when my wife's sin becomes, I become bitter about her sin. No, when I become aware of and cognizant of and disgusted by my own sin, then marriage becomes sweet because I'm able to love, recognizing the way that I've been loved even so. When I recognize my own lingering sinfulness and I approach the problems in my marriage with this statement, what sinful tendencies have I brought to this situation? What are some of the sinful tendencies that I've actually brought to this conflict? Then I'm able to stop pointing my finger and actually begin the process of biblical restoration, dealing with conflict. And when we understand something of God's love for us, again, while we were and remain sinful, His grace moves us to love our spouse and our neighbor even when they're sinful. Paul Tripp, who's written the book that we're using, says, this, says it this way, A marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow out of a daily worship of God as Savior. You will only respond in a way that is right, good, and helpful to your spouse's sin, weakness, and struggle when you are celebrating the transforming grace of an ever-present, always faithful Redeemer. So we're laying the foundation, and tonight I just wanted again to to set the stage for the upcoming weeks with this, again, a very brief discussion on oneness. And so I think what I'll do, since it's 728, is um, please take advantage of, please let us know if you have questions, because I would, I would really love if, if someone has a, a, a nagging question or something that's been lingering, and, and maybe it's something very personal that you don't want to share in a group this size, I totally understand, and, and it makes total sense. But feel free to write down your question, put it in an envelope, and put it in one of those boxes in the back. 
If it's not a question, I mean, if it's a question you want to, you you just want to send an email to info at capshaw.org, um, you can do that as well. And I'd love to, you know, to try to address some of those questions that you might have. Um, and I don't have all the answers, but we can we can look at these things biblically and theologically and try to uh, try to make some sense of of uh, try to give an answer to your question. So I uh, I'd planned on going from 6.35 to 7.15, but I went longer than that. But um, it's cold outside. What are you going to do? Go outside and stand in the cold. So thanks for, uh, thanks for your attentiveness and for participating. Um, we will resume uh, next week with lesson, uh, well, it'll be lesson two, but it'll be commitment one. And uh, I think Pastor Adam's teaching next week, uh, as I recall, or John, no, John Kirkpatrick, yeah. So uh, either way, it would be excellent instruction, and you would benefit uh, from being there. So let me pray for us.